From Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Jennifer is the co-founder and general partner at Reach Capital, a venture capital firm that invests in education companies that expand the reach of education. Jennifer grew up in Chicago and attended two different high schools in the city and suburbs. Jennifer taught in traditional public schools for seven years, pursued an MA in education from Stanford, and then went on to learn the craft of venture capital over almost a decade before co-founding Reach Capital. She found venture to be a powerful lever to remove the obstacles that stand in the way of opportunity, especially for those without a voice. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Jennifer. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So let's start with a question I'd like to ask everyone, which is just, what's your story? What brought you to education? Why is this something you care about? Yeah, um, I've been in education now for 25 years. I started um, my career in education as a high school teacher when I was 21 years old um, in Chicago. And I feel really grateful to be in this sector. Like I'm still very excited and fired up about it. Um, but I, I think I got into education because I had this very for, formative experience when I was in high school. I attended, I grew up outside of Chicago in a suburb called Glen Ellen, a uh, western suburb. And when I was a sophomore um, in high school, I moved into the city and went to Whitney Young High School, a Chicago public school. And it's a great school, um, made famous by um, the alumni, uh, Michelle Obama. And it it opened my eyes, though, to the, the disparities in education um, at a young age. I was, um, you know, 15, and I was really, it was a really stark contrast into the resources and the equity of, of education. So uh, comparing the suburban experience to the inner city experience was probably what put me on this path of pursuing education. So I became a history teacher, a secondary history teacher. I taught middle school and high school in Chicago and in the Bay Area. And then I got my master's. We moved out to the West Coast. Um, I married a guy from my high school. And we uh, got my master's at Stanford in curriculum and teacher education and thought I was going to continue on with with teaching but it was there that I became interested in venture capital in how entrepreneurs can provide this sort of exogenous force into education and to improve it and after my master's degree I studied by the way at Stanford I did a study on differentiated learning Um, I published my thesis in um journal. And then I uh, pursued venture capital in education at an organization called New Schools Venture Fund, which I did for nine years. I was fortunate to be brought under the wing of of John Doerr and Brooke Byers and some of these other kind of legendary venture capitalists in the Valley. Um, And then we split off and started uh, Reach Capital, which is a venture fund totally focused on education. So I feel that I can still really impact education in a meaningful way, although I do miss the classroom sometimes. Uh, but I, I really I really love this this angle of still being in education. Let's jump right into, you said, 
entrepreneurs can be a force for improving education. So since you've been a professional investor, what are some ways that technology has improved mainstream education, especially? Sure. There's, there's so many. Um, so I, when I was teach, this will date me, but when I was a classroom teacher, like we still received that green folder that was a kind of paper um, grade book. And, you know, most teachers in secondary teach 170, 180 kids. It's very complicated. There's a lot of complexity to the job. And yet the, the tools that we had to do the job were very archaic. I mean, this, this was at a time when we had online banking and shopping and consumer apps were coming online, and yet teachers had very primitive tools. So I think just sort of basic tooling, like grade books, like planning calendars, like online content, all of this stuff has really made teachers' job, um, I think, a lot more satisfying in some ways. Um, and allows them to focus on the instruction and the curriculum and the relationships with the, with the kids, which ultimately matter most. So we've seen a lot of progress in those um, sectors, which is exciting and, and they continue to evolve. But I think this one of the, some of the areas that I'm really excited about are things like um, feedback loops, like you know, the way that students, ultimately get better at something and improve is receiving that feedback loop from the teachers and the te- the relationship where the teacher and the student kind of work in tandem and um, pursue the learning together. And I really am excited about all the different tools in that area and the content that allows teachers to kind of quickly provide sort of just-in-time content and inspirational um mentorship and and other types of um, learning tools that that they that they normally would not have at their disposal without technology so like newzella you know is a, a great example of one like teachers used to do that manually so they just wouldn't have that many feedback turns for the students and then of course i'm i'm super excited about all the alternative models of education of which sora is you know, leading the way in the, the virtual online virtual schooling. So um, really, as you know, I'm really excited about that space too. Certainly. So those are some of the ways that we've improved education in the past. What are some things right now that you think are most ripe for innovation, if you will? There's, oh my gosh, there's, there's so much, you know, as, as an investor, sometimes I think it's easy to fall in the trap, like, oh, innovation's done. We've already figured this out. And and just being in this space now for investing space for about 15 years, there's always these new horizons to innovate, new platforms to innovate on. So I, I don't think that, you know, I think it's early days. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation um, happening now and and actually like in the next five ten years in education I, I feel it's going to be just huge amount of, of innovation happening um, but one of the uh, there's a lot of challenges right now I think one challenge that is interesting is um, the relevancy gap for for kids and you you and I have talked about this a lot but we are the curriculum right now lags the pace of um, change in our society. And so we kids are on the internet exploring, learning on their own, 
do learning about crypto and you know all nfts and all types of interesting things and different capitalist systems and yet our curriculum the way that it changes and evolves is slow um and i don't think that's it's for good reason like we don't want our public institutions to be changing at you know kind of cutting edge speed i don't think um because they serve a very important purpose in our society. But I do feel that there needs to be more room in the, the school day, in the, in the curriculum instruction that gives students space to find their self-agency, to pursue their own learning, and for the curriculum really to catch up to kind of where kids, where kids are at. So that's an area that I've been thinking about a lot Garrett and and exploring different companies in that space. I think I've, I've shared some with you that I'm that I've been interested in. Um, so that's a whole sector. I we're, I'm also digging in a lot to mental health, and I really do feel that student wellness, mental health, is going to be a super important mm, just whole sector of of our education system in years to come. And I first became interested in that, I mean, you, for years ago, like you could see the writing on the wall before the pandemic that our students in the U.S. and other developed countries were, were suffering with higher rates of anxiety and depression. And it was troublesome and you know, trying to get underneath that is there's lots of different explanations for that. And people have different, different viewpoints on that. But I also was very inspired by... Um, the book 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, Yuval's book. I don't know if you've, you've read that one. But there's a chapter on education. And I thought that the way he described the future of education, although I didn't agree with it entirely, was fascinating because it was really about the importance of self-awareness. Because of the pace of change in technology innovation, it's important to teach students um, about self-awareness, about how their brain works, about mental health and wellness, so that they can adapt to the to the quickening pace of change in our society, which some believe is causing some of this anxiety and, and rising rates of depression and that sort of thing. He also talks about like he has this phrase like staying ahead of the algorithm, like the algorithms will will move so quickly, and you know we're seeing this actually play out with Instagram. You know the recent research that came out on on how Instagram affects teens. So giving kids that insider knowledge and information about, you know, how these systems work, like when they're clicking on certain videos and images, you know, how that impacts their brains and their thinking and their mental health and confidence and all of that, that stuff. So I feel that needs to be explicitly taught. Otherwise, it's going to be like this whack-a-mole world where we're, you know, if it's not Instagram, it's going to be another technology that's um, that's that's challenging our, our mental health in different ways. And our children are the, are very vulnerable, as you know, at this age. Um, and so the way that their brains are wired and the way that they're they're cognitively growing, it's really that they're very sensitive. Um, we all are, but it, especially at that teenage. And so how do we then teach them explicitly about these, the way that their brain works in mental health? 
Yeah, that's so important. I was talking someone's ear off about this yesterday, actually. <laughs> I think. Yeah, what do you think on it? I'm, I'm curious where you've landed and do you teach it at Sora? We do have an emphasis on social emotional learning at Sora. I think we can go further, especially in the realm of what you named, which is awareness, metacognition, mindfulness, whatever words you want to use, for the exact reason that things are changing so rapidly. If we're not in tune with how they make us feel and how they change our behavior, we're going to be at the whims of these, you know, gigantic corporations without our best interests at heart. And this story played out in my own life, quite honestly, where in high school, I was in these, uh, I guess you would call it... um, deleterious feedback loops <laughs> where I was, you know, playing way too many video games and like as a coping mechanism, as escapism. Yep. And it was only really when I stumbled into various philosophies with a with an emphasis on self-awareness that I took the time to get to know myself and how is this impacting me? And it became quickly clear that I was just a dopamine craving, you know, monkey clicking the button like they designed me to and I it was not making me feel good. I was in these these reward loops and that is just not a healthy place I wanted to be and if I was not made aware of this unfortunately I did not have a teacher who taught me this I had to stumble it into it on my own but if I was not made aware of this at the right age I would not be doing what I am now exactly that is fascinating there's this new there's a new book out on dopamine from a Stanford professor I can't remember what the name is it was there was a Wall Street Journal piece on it and she called it the the molecule of more so it's not just that it like makes you feel good it's just that you want more and more in that addictive quality that's so you know damaging and nefarious about that but it's important but it's it yeah it's really fascinating and I think just even understanding how that works and giving the our our kids those tools so important And to your former point, I'm sorry to go back, but I think you made two great points in there I want to spend time on. So to your former point about where do those productivity gains of technology go? Because it's almost like a narrative violation where everyone's saying we're in this downward spiral of of educational quality and, you know, the United States is falling further and further behind. But as you correctly identified, technology has improved the classroom. It certainly has. So identifying where those productivity gains are going and being properly utilized, I would say that we really require two infrastructure improvements to remove the main bottleneck in innovation right now. And the main one is just, even if it's just standards-based grading or it's having having more mechanisms to support integrated curriculum having kids explore things, whatever is most interesting interesting to them. And then that allows us to then, which is the second point, but pretty related, which is just recognizing learning where it happens, right? Following someone along their, their journey. And Sora's done some crazy things with this that we've not invested enough time in, but I look forward to in the future of like, even just having Chrome extensions where you can write notes to a YouTube video you're watching, right? Because there's tons of learning happening everywhere. And as educators, we need to recognize where it's happening and giving students credit for that right so they can explore on their own volition yeah yeah was it you that told me that story that when you were in high school you were like leading a sports club and the teacher wouldn't give you credit for for PE for that was it, you? it wasn't but oh. I've heard that story many times <laughs> yeah, yeah it's no, crazy I, I totally agree with that I, I and, and the interdisciplinary 
learning is is so key because a lot of kind of breakthrough type of learning happens at the intersection of disciplines and yet our school systems are still organized in these siloed subjects that I think no longer make sense maybe did 100 years ago but but are increasingly um, obsolete so but they're efficient methods of organization and I yes. totally get that and when you look at the tools we had available to us even two decades ago, as again, you properly identified, we have way more computational power or, or we have way more ability to organize information to act on it than we did two decades ago. And imagine having integrated curriculum or even allowing students to personalize curriculum at all when you had to fill up paperwork to figure out what students knew and what they don't know yet and therefore plan their their um, graduation path, right? It would have been literally impossible. But now we have that ability. We just got to catch up with the capabilities we have. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very challenging actually to plan a high quality project that is interdisciplinary that teaches the discrete skills that you need, um, that students need at a certain phase of of growth and development. And I think that that's something that the the not Silicon Valley, but more like the ed tech space or technology space has undervalued. Uh, when I came in, when, especially when I came into the space, um, you know, 15 years ago, I felt that a lot of, and this is what actually I love about how you think Garrett about, um, learning and education is that you did not undervalue that, but how they think about curriculum and content, that it was not, you know, sort of, I felt that there was there was a lot of technologists that said, "Oh, content is a commodity, and that is just like this this kind of monolithic thing that you can just go to the internet and get content." And actually, that could not be further from the truth. Like high quality curriculum and content is very challenging to curate, pull together, create, and then scaffold for students. It takes, it's, it's, those are rare skills and it takes a lot of time. It's a signal to noise thing, right? There's so much content on the internet and only a small, yes, there's, there's a ton of great content, but it's drowned out by all the bad content. And what I like to tell people is a pretty simple mental exercise, which is if that truly were the problem, if access to content was the problem, why isn't everyone a super genius? Why doesn't everyone have equivalent of a PhD, right? It's because that's not the problem. It's the other things that schools do around inspiration, accountability, community, right? Pathfinding, mentorship. Those are the things that we're actually missing. Yes, yes. So I actually want to dive into that a little more if you're if you're willing, which is in this industry especially, and it, it's funny because I kind of, on paper, I am this person, although I think I've overcome many of my biases, which is there are a lot of people coming from outside of education who come in and they have a very particular view of what needs to change. And I think it's a similar mistake they make over and over. And so the, my question to you is what is what are some of those common mistakes you identify from non-educators entering the ed tech space or trying to create a product to improve schools? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my, my, my favorite topics to talk about. Um, at first, I, I should say, though, I think that the, the as we were talking about interdisciplinary cu- curriculum being so important, like these interdisciplinary hybrid teams are super important. 
like I, I taught this class at Stanford last quarter uh, with Steve Blank called Lean Launchpad, and we pulled together teams from engineering and MBAs and um, comp sci and, and all different um, areas of the, the university, and we create these startup teams, and they see how far they can get in 10 weeks, and many companies go on to raise money and, and form companies. But it's so interesting, this process, because like the all MBA teams, you don't want that because they're just like marketing like crazy, don't build products. The all engineering teams you don't want either because they're kind of building into a hole and they're not thinking about their uh, their marketing or go to market strategy. So like these, these hybrid teams are really where the magic happens. And I find the same phenomenon true in, in ed tech startups as well, is that when you can form teams that have world-class technical talent, world-class education talent, and you know some go-to-market business MBA, you know mojo, then that type of hybrid teams, those are those are really powerful. Um, you know, a good example of that is. Desmos, you know Desmos, the math company? Right. They have like this trio that is just such an interesting founding trio where they have Dan Meyer, this PhD in educate in math from Stanford, who's like this his runs this blog, DY Dan, very, very well-known math blog, often an NCTM speaker, kind of at the cutting edge of pedagogy and math. Then they have Eric, the CTO, this kind of world-class technologist, worked at all these like cutting edge frontier technologies. And then the CEO, Eli, who has, you know, also a product genius, math guru. And so just this, this kind of combination of skill sets is, is really what, what made this, has made this company um, just so, so incredible. So I find that same type of hybrid important, but to your question, like companies that don't value the educator voice and that don't elevate that experience and sort of disregard it and um, think of it as like too soft. I, I just, I find those teams, uh, we don't back those teams. And also they, I think that they eventually will struggle. Um, and it's re- really important how they, how they elevate their educators too in the kind of C-level suites of their companies. Like, are they relegated to sort of customer success all the time? And that's an important role, but, or do they have important C-level positions in the company? So that's, that's probably the, you know, the biggest, the, the number one. A lot of people ask, like, do you, do, do companies need to be started by educators? I don't think so. I think that if, if you have a, I think founders have a reason for starting their company and, and. Um, if they have a passion for improving education and they have an empathy for the educator and the learning process, um, I think that that works well. Like Nearpod has been a very successful company we've talked about, was not started by educators, but they had the founder had gone through the D school at Stanford and had a very kind of empathy driven approach to his product strategy. So that's one. Um, I also think maybe another one I would just mention is that um, this idea that we were just talking about before before we got started is like 
that we got to burn the boats of education and that we, you know, have to, to kind of throw away the system. And I, I just, I don't think that that's the right approach. There's 50 million kids in our public school system and, you know, half of them are um, coming from a, a sort of um, low income background. And I, I, I don't sort of, I don't believe in that, that approach that we need to just kind of completely innovate outside the system. I like the, I like the companies that are working, um, side by side or alongside the system in some way. Let's talk about reform. Let's just jump straight into it. (laughs) So what do you think are the main barriers towards a public education reform? Because as we said earlier, I think we just have way more technological capability and the technology that's the ed tech that's developing around these institutions can support them to rethink their role in a pretty significant way. But as far as I've seen, nothing drastic has happened in the last call it, call it a decade. So it's been incremental improvement, I should say. So what do you think are the barriers towards a competency based approach or, you know, some of the, some of these things that are supported um, by research, but are difficult to pull off. Reform is hard. So what do you think are those barriers? Yeah, when you say that nothing drastic has happened, what what do you mean by that? I mean, still our obsession with the Carnegie unit scoped by subject approach to learning. And I think we have the tools, if we use them intelligently, to get away from that archaic system. Yeah. It's it's a really good question. Um, I think it's very complex. I do think that that part of it is maybe parental fear in some ways even and um, the thought of doing something radically like radically different for your child I think there's still sort of can be fear for for parents that you know that, that, that they're doing the right thing like it's just safer to go with a system that you're others in your neighborhood that you went through and so there's just inertia around that that initial that that system that we have in place um and that may be why parents parents it's been slow to change in a lot of ways in in part just because of like the the unknowns around what this the, the 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 new system and new ways are they actually doing what what is best for my child? I mean, what is universal around the world for sure is that, and regardless of income level, is that parents desperately want to support their children and to do what's right by their children, and they are they're, they're trying to do that. But you know, why? What are some of the obstacles to to reform? I think that you hit on the the, the one around time based learning, the Carnegie Unit. I think that's. That's a very stubborn one that I would love to see go away um, immediately. <laughs> so it's, that's, that's one that I think would, would dramatically change education. And some of the alternative systems that we have in place, like virtual schools and some of the charter school models, they're not held to that same type of regulation. And so they're able to innovate on those margins a bit more and especially open up the curriculum and allow different kind of blocks of time for more self-driven student-driven learning. Um, I also think that there's a challenge around the teaching, the way that we teach teachers that I, I, I do feel that, you know, it's one of the biggest challenges we just have is how the, the schools of education and how we, how we educate teachers. 
And how I feel that that's very traditional in a lot of ways. And that could be a very important channel of innovation in our system. And then there's lots of other stuff that that we can go into, but, you know, around just policy and unions and, and stuff like that. But I'm not sort of one of those people that think that unions are the problem necessarily. I think unions have served a very important function in our society. And right now the job of the teacher is impossibly hard. And, you know, the unions are, are looking out uh, for, for, the, for the teachers and, and it's just a very challenging job right now. Fascinating. Let's talk about public education, especially in a post-COVID world. So we've talked previously about this teacher shortage and the enrollment decline. And as you just alluded to now, uh, the, the rise of online charter school models and all these things. So give us access to your crystal ball, the Jennifer crystal ball. How is this going to play out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. I um I mean, some of the, we, we look at the data, what's happening now, and try to draw projections based on what we're seeing. So a couple, couple high-level macro trends I can share with you. So the charter school movement has been around for 20 years, and it's at about 6% of the K-12 population attends a charter school. It, so it has grown rather slowly, in, in large part due to policy uh, issues, and I think increasingly public sentiment, although it'll be interesting to see after, after uh, COVID, you know, post-COVID world, how, how that might change. So what's interesting is the virtual school market that you, that you are in, um, that has grown at a, a much faster clip, and COVID has accelerated that growth. Um, for a lot of different reasons. So at the policy level, but also I think just an openness to um, new behaviors of how of how we learn online and connect with each other online that were created during during the COVID era. So uh, we are this data is just kind of coming out right now, but we had sort of seen projections that in the last two years, public school enrollment decline was going to be somewhere between three and 10%, um, which in two years, I mean, you compare that against the charter school movement, 6% over 20 years, this is a, this is a huge disruption to the system. And so that's, that is, we're just getting preliminary numbers in right now. And it is actually bearing out between five and ten percent um, public school oh, wow. enrollment. Yeah, it's a big deal. So we don't know where they have gone yet, and that's the next, you know, trove of data that we want to get our hands on. Is have they gone to private, virtual, homeschool? Um, you know, wh- wh- where are these students now? But that's it's definitely there was a lot of families for various reasons were disenchanted with the public system, the way they handled COVID, left the system and then did not come back. Um, they sought out alternatives and they're sticking with those or, you know, I also think that the, the flexible, the way that we work now flexibly, and I know this is not for every occupation, but there definitely is a trend towards more flexible work and education has not adapted to that yet the education system and so the teachers who are 77 percent are women many have families they they don't have those um they don't have that flexibility they're expected to be on campus at 7 30 you know they they can't leave for a dentist appointment of course and in in most of these systems 
they have to be there till four and that's not working with the, you know, their own childcare issues and the way that, that they need flexible work options. So there's a lot of, there's a lot there, but I think that's one of the big changes is just like, there's this massive teacher shortage now. There's students are leaving the public school system. There was the mental health crisis that continues to um, evolve and um, exact a toll on our, our children and our, and our teachers too. And all of that is coming together, sort of this 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 witch's brew of of uh, trends that are impacting our public system and sadly, like eroding the the traditional public school system. So I do think the there's going to be a rise of alternative options. The growth of ch- the virtual schools is going to increase. Just you know, I, I've t- I've talked with you a lot about that. It's like I really feel that that's on the rise. Um, and then we're, we're having like more of an outsourcing or, you know, sort of uh, partnering with um, ed tech companies to provide teachers, outsource teachers and electives and different parts of the schooling process um, are going to be increasingly outsourced to, to different different partnerships. Which is a great, great segue to the new, this is dating the episode a little bit, not sure when this is going to come out, but the OutSchool news from yesterday. Could you tell listeners a little bit about that and being proud investors of OutSchool and also what this means for exactly what you were saying, the public, the public private partnership going forward? Yeah. So, so OutSchool is the largest um, marketplace of live online classes for the K-12 demographic. And yesterday they announced their Series D financing, 110 million, um, valued valuing the company at three billion. So this now is the highest valued private U.S. Um, K-12 company, and I think it's very exciting news for OutSchool, and also it's for I think it's reflective of some of these trends that we're discussing, is that there is a hunger for alternatives for different types of learning for more connectivity online for going beyond your neighborhood um, for more passion-driven student-driven learning and uh, OutSchool was started by Amir, Nick, and Mikhail back in I think it was 2017 you know with this this mission to really give teachers and students a place to connect online around interest-driven learning. So it's really exciting to see, to see that, um, be recognized by the, by the, the markets and for them to have that, that, um, that, that new cash to, to continue their growth. They have been growing rapidly. Um, they were growing, they were growing very well before COVID, but COVID accelerated their growth and also they're growing quite a bit globally about a quarter of their um, learners are outside of the US too oh wow so what do you think this means for I know we've had previous conversations where we spoke about how teachers and institutions are becoming more comfortable with outsourcing things that are closer to the student, like instruction, electives, like you said. So what do you think OutSchool's round and continued growth means for that partnership? With with schools? Yeah, I mean, it, it is such an interesting time right now because I'm sure you're watching what's going on in China, too, how they have put the kibosh on um, tutoring and test prep and, and, and this has really hurt the businesses there that were focused on 
um, the core subject areas, but they are trying to encourage you know, a, all, there's many reasons for this, but one of it is that they're encouraging, um, t- s- getting away from this kind of test prep, t- test focused, um, t- tutoring that is, is losing steam by the way, across the world. And we've seen this with the, su- the decline of the summative tests like the ACT and the SAT, which now, you know, University of California, the California system is, is test blind. Um, so, so those trends are declining and increasing are the trends in the favor of like the out school model of a wider breadth of learning, more interest driven learning um, and, 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 and that sort of thing. And so I think that that's the, so the fact that they have been growing so rapidly um, is in part because I think the the environment is really shifting around us um, in their favor in, in a lot of ways. So they are partnering with school districts. They work with a lot of school districts, um, Oklahoma Public Schools, Pajaro Schools here in California. And they are doing kind of just what we were talking about. They, they partner with them to provide enrichment courses, electives to... Um, to uh, give teachers a break to the teachers that are on staff in that, in that building. Like a lot of times those teachers are teaching electives. And if you can take that hour and okay, log on to out school and take whatever class you want, you have a much larger catalog of classes and they're taught by um, credentialed teachers than um, that are, are teaching different, all different subjects. I think it's a win-win for both. So um, they're doing a lot of that. They're also servicing, you know, the, the virtual school market, the charter school market, like all the different alternatives that are cropped. The homeschool market is big um, on OutSchool. So lots of different markets that as, as parents and families seek out these different alternatives, you know, OutSchool is well positioned to be able to provide um, different learning options for students. That's super exciting. So breaking the fourth wall a little bit, we have a few minutes left. So is there anything you want to make sure we absolutely discuss or any plugs you get in before we, I ask the final question, <laughs> which will be about, uh, if you can make the final question is if you wave a magic wand and change one thing about traditional schools, what would it be? So it's a huge amount of directions you can take that in, but that'll be my last question. Anything you want to say before that? Well, I, I actually, you know, since you and I don't get it, a lot of time to, to talk and this is, feels really luxurious to have this time with you. <laughs> um, I'm just curious what, you know, can I turn that on you, Garrett, and ask, like, what do you, where do you see Sora in 10 years? So you've been working really hard building this space. Like, how do you, and what I, one of the things I just love about how you built Sora is that you have taken the best of traditional schooling and what we've learned about about education to date you haven't kind of thrown that off you've you've taken the best of it and integrated it into a new system and i'm just i'm just curious like where do you see that going yeah i think that's exactly right we've just wanted to be students of model of proven models right we have done a little bit of innovation around how much how technology can help facilitate a more progressive pedagogy and school model but a lot of us, is, a lot of what Sora is, is just copying local innovations. So things that happen in these schools that are not accessible to people, using technology to make it a little more scalable and accessible, and then making it available to kids who don't have $30,000 to spend on a progressive school per year, right? 
So that's going to continue to be the mission of Sora around creating a world-class school that's available to anyone. But there are so many more opportunities for us to grow. Being a global school is hugely important for reasons we've already we've already discussed. But uh, just allowing that interaction between a kid who lives in the deep south, I, I got to move a bunch. But a lot of my my high my high school career in particular was just in central Texas, right? Did not see many different types of people. And that's true of many students at Sora, too. But we have the opportunity for students to ask, hey, student who lives internationally, what's it like to be a Muslim in the 21st century, right? Just this insane opportunity to build diverse connections and groups. So being a global school is is hugely important to us in the next, I'll say next decade since that was your prompt, but I'll say next three years, really. (laughs) Um, In-person interaction. So uh, we're not crazy. We know that in-person interaction is important. However, I don't think the educational engine has to be built in person. The actual courses that we offer, the um, the differentiated graduation paths, and we can, I can do a whole plug for Sora, but um, those things can be built online, but we still want to have an intelligent hybrid blend between in-person experiences in the online um, arena. So, Uh, And I suppose lastly, there are just some things that we can do around peer-to-peer learning that no one else really has the chance to do because of our commitment to getting away from Carnegie units and having more competency-based assessment and our our commitment to high-quality data and building these systems to support progressive pedagogy. We can do things to turn everyone into an educator. This is like our previous conversation. I think this is a big mistake that a lot of people, non-educators make, which they say, they devalue curriculum to your point and they say, we're going to replace teachers by doing this and this, this. I don't think that's the case, but instead technology can turn everyone into an educator, right? Everyone has something to share with their community, but just identifying that and connecting those people, that's a difficult bit. There's a lot more, but those are, are three things I'm really excited about over the next few years. I love that. I love that. So Jennifer, the last question I like to ask people, and I know this can go a million different directions, but... If you could wave a magic wand, since you already have a crystal ball, we determined. So your crystal ball and your magic wand next to it, if you could wave it and change anything about traditional schools, what would that be? What would you use your one wish on? One wish is, is really hard because I do I do feel that it's it's there's no sort of panacea to improving education. I feel it's a constellation of movements and efforts and and different types of actions that we're going to take to improve this system. But if I, I'm going to cheat just a little bit. Just give me two here. The first one would be. Deal. (laughs) Okay. The first one would be to open up the curriculum and give students greater self-agency. I think we continuously underestimate our children and how incredible you know what they have to contribute and offer and how how they can learn from each other like you said and um how they can contribute to society and so i would i would say open up the curriculum give them the forum the agency the space to to learn create and contribute to our society like our, our kids are incredible and now that we've have knowledge everywhere it's it's even more important that we do so and then the second is just where we started with Garrett around I do feel this understanding 
um, ourselves, self-awareness, the science of the mind, whatever you want to call it. I feel that this is incredibly important for, for our wellness, for our children's wellness, our own wellness for the next, um, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, really. And I think that we have to get very serious about that immediately and start to, to teach, to teach our children about, about themselves and about metacognition, as you said, and self-awareness. I think that's going to become increasingly important because of the pace of change in our society. So those would be my two. Very well said. Well, thank you again, Jennifer, for being on the show. And if people are interested in learning more about you or your activities, where should they go to do that? Um, so I'm, I'm with Reach. So you can find me at um, Reach Capital. And then my, my email is just jennifer at reachcapital.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soar's Learning Lab. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.